Claustrophobia, as you know, is an extreme or irrational fear of confined spaces. Now, I am not by nature a, a, a claustrophobic person, but I can certainly relate to the feeling. One time, Katie and I were on a hiking trip together, and we came up with the grand idea while we were walking to crawl into this little tunnel-like cave. And when I say that we came up with the idea, I mean that I came up with the idea and she succumbed to peer pressure. Now, as we made our way into this cave, uh, we had gotten somewhere in the neighborhood of 10 to 15 feet crawling on our belly, military style, when suddenly the thought occurred to me. What if you get stuck in here? Who is going to come in here and get you out of this place? There was a lot of rock between us and safety. That was all it took. I was out of that cave in no time. I definitely felt claustrophobic, but I think that that was uh, a healthy form of it, if you will. Maybe we could call it claustro common sense. Don't crawl into the cave like that. Now, there's another form of claustrophobia that I wish that every Christian would experience. I wish that every Christian had the fear of confining God with their view. If we really understood reality, if we understood who God is, if we understood his attributes fully, his characteristics fully, then we would develop a healthy fear of confining him, minimizing him, restricting him. Yet most of us don't have this fear, and it ends up hindering us in this life. When you believe that God is confined in some aspect of his attributes, and let's just get this on the table, just because I think that God is confined in some way in his attributes, that does not limit God at all. He is still the same God that we see in the Bible, that we see his handiwork in nature. Yet, when I confine him in some way, it ends up not hindering him at all, it ends up hindering me in terms of the faith steps that I'm willing to take, in terms of the things that I'm willing to trust God for. Now remember, the, the title of this series that we've been looking at in the book of Genesis, we have called it Unhindered. And one of the things that we've seen in this book of Genesis, particularly in these last chapters with Joseph, is that he had an unhindered view of God. How big, remember, was Joseph's God? And we've seen that his God was colossal, infinite in magnitude. And so in these final closing moments of the book of Genesis, we're going to come back to the reality of the greatness of God. We're not going to confine him. Indeed, we're going to see some principles that if we would unhinder our view of God in these ways, we could truly maximize our Christian life fully. Before we do that, let's just catch up a little bit in the story. Remember uh, where we left off last week? Jacob was 
pronouncing blessing over his son, and it was like the final fireworks display, the finale of the grand fireworks display when he pronounces blessing over his son Joseph six times. I love what happens at the end of his blessing pronouncements. The text says that Jacob lifts his legs on the bed, he lays down, and he dies. Now, that's how I want to go. I want to just pronounce those blessings over people. I want to lay on the bed and just go and be with Jesus. I think that sounds pretty cool. When he gives his final wishes just before dying, Jacob, by faith, asks that his sons would take him to the promised land. You remember back in the book of Genesis, along the way, Abraham bought a field, and there was a cave in that field at Machpelah. This field, this cave, Abraham demonstrated immense faith in purchasing it because he bought it for a horrible price. We said that it was a bad deal. Do you remember that? But it was a bad deal that Abraham was willing to make in faith. And uh, now Jacob, so many years later, is willing to make the same bad deal. He says, take me out of this luxurious place in Egypt and place me in a backwoods cave because this is the place where God says I need to be. We pick up in chapter 50, the brothers, Joseph, they obey Jacob's request down to the last word. Joseph goes to Pharaoh and he asks that his, uh, that he could leave Egypt to bury his father in the land of Canaan. And Pharaoh gives him a rather lavish funeral. Bruce Walke, in his masterful commentary on Genesis, shares the Egyptians mourn him for two and a half months as they would mourn their own king. The skilled physicians embalm him for 40 days in the most senior dignitaries, both from Pharaoh's own court and from the whole empire, bear Jacob's body homeward from Egypt to Canaan in a grand and grave funeral cortege. He's mourned like a king, and his sons mourn over him. It's a beautiful picture of redemption when you think about it. How did Jacob begin in life? Well? Not so well. Not so well, right? This is a beautiful picture in redemption and we see that along the way Jacob learned to walk by faith, to trust God with his life. And unlike his father, Jacob ends well. And God gives him this beautiful funeral procession to highlight the fact that this man learned how to walk by faith. Isn't God's grace amazing? It's absolutely amazing. We just sang about it, didn't we? When they arrive in the promised land, Jacob is mourned for seven days, and so we'll read a little bit about that funeral time. Look at Genesis 50, starting at verse 10. When they came to the threshing floor of Atad, which is beyond the Jordan, They lamented there with a great and grievous lamentation, and he made a mourning for his father seven days. When the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, saw the mourning on the threshing floor of Atad, they said, this is a grievous mourning by the Egyptians. Therefore, the place was named Ebel Mizraim. It is beyond the Jordan. 
Thus his sons did for him as he had commanded them, for his sons carried him to the land of Canaan and buried him in the cave of the field of Machpelah to the east of Mamre, which Abraham bought with the field from Ephron, the Hittite, to possess as a burying place. And he had buried his father. After he had buried his father, Joseph returned to Egypt with his brothers and all who had gone up with him to bury his father. And we pick up the story. And here we see our first principle. You need an unhindered view of God's grace. You see, the death of a family member can bring disunified family members together, but it does not necessarily make the family issues go away. Have you ever noticed that? In fact, the days and months following a funeral can actually surface the real issues that have been lying dormant within the family. Not because of the funeral. The crisis itself doesn't create the problems, it just reveals them. The strain and the stress of the funeral brings them bubbling to the surface. All of those undealt with, unpronounced, hidden expectations or whatever else there has been. So Joseph's family is no different than your family and my family. There is conflict that is about to occur. Now, the passage doesn't tell us when this encounter happens. It could have taken place as they were journeying back from Canaan down to Egypt or after they had finally made their way back to Egypt. But sometime after the funeral, the brothers started asking a question, a question that had some really cold logic associated with it. Genesis 50, verse 15 When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, It may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. Their minds went there, didn't it? They were asking, what if Joseph has been waiting all of this time to enact his revenge? You could find yourself in the same place. It wouldn't be that hard after all that we did to him. Is someone just going to forget about us selling him down into Egypt? It only makes sense. He's probably holding off for the sake of dad, but now that the funeral's over, oh boy, he is going to drop the anvil upon us. So the brothers concoct a lie. Look at verses 16 and 17. They sent a message to Joseph saying, your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And now please forgive them. So verse 17 tells us how this made Joseph feel. The text says that Joseph wept when they spoke to him. I think you can understand why. Back in Genesis 45, remember how gentle and kind Joseph was to his brothers when he was forgiving them? The Bible even says in verse 5 that he said, do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. But now after 17 years 
or after 17 years, Joseph had actually not just said those words to them, he also backed those words up with his actions, didn't he? For 17 years, he had given them a home to stay. He had blessed them with provisions. He had demonstrated to them that there was no ill will or hostility within himself. So his response to his brothers uh, shortly after this, when they come to him, was big-hearted. You can summarize it with three words. He says to them, do not, what, fear. He didn't growl at them. I don't know if you can work yourself into his shoes right now, but do you think that this would be one of the last things you would want to deal with right after your father dies? I mean, I don't know about you, but just the implication of it, the fact that they're coming out and saying, Joseph, you're a hypocrite, right? For 17 years, you have been hiding and masking your true intentions, but now, now you intend to carry it out. So this might almost make you want to say, well, I wasn't there before, but I'm there now. Notice another thing he doesn't say. He doesn't say, I forgive you. Twice in verse 17, his brothers ask, please forgive us. Please forgive us. But Joseph doesn't say, I forgive you. He says what? Do not, what? Fear. You know why? Because Joseph's brothers didn't need new forgiveness. Forgiveness had already taken place 17 years ago. Indeed, I think that forgiveness already took place in the heart of Joseph when he was naming his sons Ephraim and Manasseh. His brothers didn't need new forgiveness. They needed to live in the light of the grace that was already present in their lives. Can you imagine that? For 17 years, living with the weight of thinking, of being suspect that Joseph really didn't mean what he said. But no, he had forgiven them. And what they needed was the assurance of the reality of that forgiveness. This is the type of dynamic where we can easily find ourselves looking into the mirror. I don't know about you, but I have struggled with the notion of assurance. I don't know how long ago it was when you placed your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Maybe like these brothers, it was some 17 years ago plus when you trusted Jesus as your Savior. You heard the call of Christ, come to me. And in that call, you experienced the lavish grace of God when you placed your faith in Him. You recognized that God the Father sent God the Son to die on the cross for your sins. And in that act, God promised forgiveness to you. And so you came. You put your faith in Him. You trusted Him. And even now, the Holy Spirit of God is working in your heart and He's making you look more like Jesus. Yet you live regularly with the same concern these brothers share. What if it really wasn't real? What if? What if I didn't believe strongly enough? What if 
Heaven isn't all that I think it's going to be. Maybe it's a fabrication. What if I get to heaven and I'm standing before God and, and God says to me, just kidding. I know you trusted Jesus, but you did that one thing that I just won't accept. And here's reality. Those thoughts happen to most people in this room. Most people. Some of us might not struggle with that at all, but I would submit to you that I think most do. Why do we struggle with this? Well, there's several reasons. The first is that we allow our emotions to lead our minds. The heart, friends, is not a flawless guide. Reject the common mantra, follow your heart. The heart isn't always right. Indeed, the heart is often wrong if we don't feed the heart with good thoughts regularly. In 1 John chapter 3, verses 19 and 20, the apostle says this, By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, that's your emotions, that's your heart condemning you, Right? God is greater than our heart. He knows everything. You see, there are times when we must allow the questions of the heart to be overturned by our faith in God's character and in God's promises. That's what the Bible is saying there in 1 John. Here's another one. We believe we have committed an unforgivable sin. Do you struggle with that? It appears that Joseph's brothers believe that their sin was unpardonable. I mean, if you're living in this culture in this time to treat a family member the way that they had treated Joseph was unforgivable. This is an honor-shame culture. The rule of the land is, if you shame me, if you dishonor me, I must get retribution in order to get my reputation back. We have our own list of sins that we believe to be unpardonable and cause us to question our salvation. I'm not going to name them all, but one big one that stands out to me is women who have had an abortion. I recently read a survey on Lifeway that found that 49% of women who've had an abortion agree that the church's teaching on forgiveness does not seem to apply to that particular sin. An additional, so 49% don't believe that they can be forgiven. An additional 24% would say, I don't know if I can be forgiven. Can you imagine living with that weight? Or what about people who have come out of some pretty rough backgrounds like drug addiction? Or what about others who have hidden some sin in the closet that no one knows about that they never want to give voice to because they're terrified that God could never forgive their sin? For example, I have had some Christians share that they don't believe that they can be forgiven because they've dabbled in the occult. Friend, If you believe you have done something that is unpardonable, 
you need to have an unhindered view of God's grace. See, there is no sin that is too big from God's grace. None of my understanding of the Scripture shows this to me. Some of us have said, well, what is that unpardonable sin that Jesus talked about in the Gospels? And i got to tell you, my understanding of that sin is the only sin that is unpardonable is for you to hear the message of the Gospel repeatedly through your life and reject it in total. Over the course of your life, that's the only sin that's unpardonable as far as I see in the scriptures. Every other sin in the Bible described is covered by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, our appropriation of God's grace is only as limited as our view of God's satisfaction in Jesus' sacrifice. Either Jesus' death on the cross was satisfying to God and, and needs nothing in addition, or it was not good enough in some way. Which was it? Which was it? Hebrews 10 tells us that it was a once-for-all act. When Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Do you have an unhindered view of God's grace? If you look at God's grace and you don't find it to be radical, transformative, over the top, even sometimes when you hear that God forgave something causing you to raise an eyebrow, You haven't really interacted with the Bible's definition of God's grace. Let's move on to another principle. You need an unhindered view of providence. So we move into another aspect of God. Joseph's brothers are quite contrite. They use a lot of words to describe what they've done, transgression, evil, sin, Now, these are strong words, and they are accurate words to describe what they have done. That's why God's grace is truly amazing. God doesn't minimize sin at all. He fully recognizes it for what it is, and despite that, he forgives. That's what the Bible teaches. After acknowledging their sin in verse 18, it tells us that his brothers came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. It's reminiscent of that prodigal son in Luke 15. Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Now Joseph's response is one of the most theologically rich statements in all of the Bible. Listen to what he says in verses 18 through 20. Joseph said to them, verse 19 actually, Do not fear. For am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for what? Good. To bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Now, his view of God is 
fitting with what we see throughout the Bible and also what we see in the handiwork of God in his vast creation. He is a God who knows no limits, who controls all things at all times, and he is sovereign, and his good providence is always at work in the world. Now, you might have the question, I just used the word providence, what in the world is providence? Well, I'd love to tell you about that. The theologian Burkhoff defines it as this, God's continued exercise of the divine energy whereby the creator preserves all of his, creation, his creatures is operative in all that comes to pass in the world and directs all things to their appointed end. So God by this definition of providence, is the ultimate governor of the universe. He's holding all the strings. He's in control. Nothing happens outside of God's plan or God's will. Joseph expressed the same theology in Genesis 45, verse 5. And now do not be grieved or angry with yourselves, because what? You sold me here. But at the same time, what? God sent me. You sold me, God sent me. You sold me is the human part of the equation. God sent me is the divine master plan part of the equation. And notice that the motives are totally different. You meant it for what? Evil. God meant it for what? Good. Now we're about to enter into the deep end of the pool. You guys ready for this? You might feel like we've already been there, but we're going a little deeper than that. And if you don't enjoy the deep end of the pool, get your wingies on and jump in with me. Lean in. Hold on to this. You ready? Erwin Lutzer explains that the biblical view of God is this. God directs the human will through secondary causes. This means that all events are under his providential care. God does not program people to do evil like a computer. You meant it for evil. But he does influence the human will by using the urges, desires, and aptitudes of people. It doesn't mean that you're a robot. It doesn't mean I'm a robot. It doesn't mean people are robots. So here this next part. People are still responsible for their decisions because they make choices based on their own inclinations and desires, but behind these influences is the providential working of God. Yet God remains innocent of blame, for he does not do the evil himself. So here are two truths that we must believe. Now these truths, as you think about them together, you might say to yourself, boy, that's, that's really hard to kind of grasp in my mind and reconcile together, but guess what? That's because we're dealing with God here, Right? If I am dealing with God and I think, oh boy, that's pretty easy for me to apprehend everything that was just said, well, you are dealing with some lesser God than the God of the Bible because he's incredibly complex. Incredibly complex. So here's the first truth. The first truth is human beings are not robots but are accountable for their actions. Here's the second. God directs the events of history so that all things are accomplished according to the counsel of his will. 
So the big question that we must ask of God, if he is this sovereign, if he's this in control, if his divine providence is in operation at all times and all places, in big ways and small ways, is what are his intentions? What does he intend to do? And the operative word that we've come to see in the book of Genesis is very simple. The word is good. God intends to do what? Good. This has been the unchanging plan of God, hasn't it? Do you remember how we opened up with the first pages of the book of Genesis? We see that divine creation event where God is calling forth the celestial bodies into being and he's creating the animals and over and over again he looks at what he has done and he says, what about it? It is good. He hasn't deviated from that plan. He hasn't shifted from that plan one iota. He still intends to do the same thing. He wants to bring about good into the world. Through the prophet Jeremiah, God spoke the same truth to his people who were about to go into captivity in evil Babylon. He said, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for wholeness and not for evil to give you a future and hope when it appeared like life was out of control, when it appeared like darkness was steamrolling over the people. God said, I know the plans that I have intentionally planned, that I am literally putting into play for you. No one else knows them, but I know them fully, and these plans were for what? Good. The Hebrew word shalom, used there for well-being, means that a plan of peace, a plan of well-being. I love these words from Pastor Kent Hughes. He says, God has never had an evil thought towards his children, and he never will. This does not mean that God's servants are shielded from hardship or misery. Just look at the life of Joseph, right? What it does mean is that God's plans are never for evil in the believer's life, but with an eye to their well-being and wholeness always. Even the apparent evil we suffer is for our good. This means that as a believer, whatever our lot, we can and must be optimistic that there is a future and a hope associated with walking by faith with God. This is the kind of theology church that leads to that unhindered life. The doctrine of providence tells us that God is in control both over good and evil. It also promises us that he is directing the total outcome of events to a good finale, so much so that in eternity we will have such an overwhelming pleasure and delight in the goodness of God's plan that we will not mourn or cry. I believe that is what Revelation is getting at when it says in eternity, neither will there'll be mourning, nor crying, nor pain. We'll look at the comprehensive picture and we'll say, that was beautiful. That was well worth it. That's why I went through that season or episode of my life. And even now, I'm sure that some of you can look back at the picture like Joseph is able to look back and see the same thing already. 
Do you have an unhindered view of God's providence? If you do, it can lead you to trust Him with anything. And as you follow Him, it can lead you to overcome anything in this life. Well, now we bring it all together. You see, our third principle is this. You need to worship an unhindered God to live an unhindered life. Joseph's unhindered view of God led him to reject retaliation. Now, let's be clear on something. If God doesn't exist, if we are living and breathing cosmic accidents that were made by really just fortunate a sequence of fortunate circumstances over billions of years of time, then revenge is very logical. Revenge is very logical. It only makes sense. Someone has taken away from you what little you have. I mean, we're small, aren't we? We're just insignificant specks of dust in a vast universe of trillions and trillions of stars, and we live for like a blip of time compared to all of the time that has already occurred. So, if someone does something to me, they've already taken away what little, little, little I already have. And I need to revenge that. I need to balance the scales. But, 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 if you believe in a God who has the ability to pull out his divine veto pen and say that evil will not have the final word, good will have the final word, then you can live an unhindered life. Not because you need more positive thinking in your world or divine karma is going to come about and in the next life they'll get theirs for whatever happened to you in this life. No, the biblical view is that you can live the unhindered life because God can overrule the evil with good. And he sees all things and he knows all things. So he's the divine, righteous judge. Once again, Joseph shows us what total forgiveness looks like in light of that theological view of God. He says in verse 21, Do not fear. There it is again. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. You see, forgiveness is an act that might require you to face the wrongs that have been perpetrated against you over and over again. It is an act where you think that you have put something in that distant past that you've moved away from it, and all of a sudden those emotions are dredged up in your heart again. I appreciate these words. The final proof that you have really forgiven the other person is that you keep on forgiving them. It is one thing to do it once and mean it, but you are not finished. How do you know you have really forgiven? The answer is what? You keep on doing it. Are you continuing to forgive that person that you said you forgive? Are you taking your thoughts captive and saying, I'm not going to think on that again. I'm not going to roll the sequence of events 
and the wrongs that have been done in my mind yet again. I'm not going to distance myself from them emotionally and relationally. I have forgiven them. I'm moving on. Have you done that? Joseph believed in a big God and his unhindered view of God led to a forgiveness that we can't even comprehend. His choice to forgive and keep on forgiving led him to live another 50 years of his life that were just dynamic in nature. Look at how this story finishes out. So Joseph remained in Egypt. He and his father's house, Joseph lived 110 years and Joseph saw Ephraim's children of the third generation, the children also of Mekirah, the son of Manasseh, were counted as Joseph's own. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. So Joseph died being 110 years old, they embalmed him and he was put in a coffin. Look at how God blessings, blesses the remaining years of his life. He has a long life, 110 years. Remember, that was considered the pinnacle age in this Egyptian society, the golden years, 110 years. And those final 50 years were not lived out with bitterness and regret over retaliation. Don't live your life with those things. Don't live the remainder of your time with bitterness. It's not worth it. And the only way to let go of that is to forgive. Another blessing, he gave Joseph the privilege of a big family. He had great, great grandchildren. And the broader family is united together. His kids, his grandkids, his great, great grandkids have the joy of knowing their uncles and their cousins and their aunties, the whole family dynamic. Now, grandparenting in the Bible is considered an immense blessing. Psalm 128.6 says, May you see your children's Children. It's a huge blessing. It's not a promise. It's not guaranteed. But generally speaking, as a maxim, if you walk by faith in this life, if you submit your plans to God's plans, this could be one of the blessings that you experience. And if you do experience this blessing, and if Jesus Christ has been pervasive in your home, it just multiplies the blessing upon your family like Joseph is seeing here. Finally, God gave Joseph remarkable faith. He saw a glimpse of the distant future. Israel would leave Egypt in a miraculous way, and that's the next story. And if I was preaching next week, we'd be heading, no, I'm just kidding, we would not be heading to the book of Exodus because I'd be going somewhere else, but that's the next step of the story is Israel leaving the land and they carry with them whose bones? Joseph's bones. That's right, Joe's bones. I like that one. Hebrews 11.22, By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. Faith doesn't only hope in the present moment. Faith looks beyond the distant horizons to eternity. 
Can you see it? I'm going to keep asking you this. Can you see what Joseph saw? Can you see eternity? Can you see that God will overcome your pain, that it will all make sense, that you will experience an intense joy like you've only caught a glimpse of in this life? Can you see it? If you can see it, you will take these steps of faith like Joseph did. So we come to the end. This is the end of our study in Genesis, and for the last time in this study, we go forward from the book of Genesis to the person of Jesus. You see, all of God's plans start, finish, and that little dash in between with Jesus. It all centers on the person of Jesus. If you want to know God, you have to come to know him through Jesus. If you want God's intentions for your life to be good, and if you want his divine providence to bring about ultimate good in your world, you have to come to know God through who? Jesus. If you want the blessing of dying in faith and spending an eternity with God in heaven, in his heaven that he's created, you can only have that through one person and one person alone. Who is that? Jesus. Genesis began with Jesus. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Colossians tells us all things were made, what? Through him and for him. And then we see in Genesis chapter 3, when sin enters the world, that there was a prophetic pronouncement that a son would come who would redeem people from their sins. We see it when Abraham was called to teach us about the life of faith, the type of faith that would be required to have in the Son of God. It is only by faith that you can be made right with God. Judah showed us the redemption that would come from one who is repentant and was transformed by the grace of God. And that was to us a picture of God grace that could be operative in your life and Judah becomes the forefather of the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. Joseph here is painting another picture. He's showing us how to look beyond to uh, past the present pain to the future hope of eternity. A hope that is only found in who? Jesus. The great faith chapter of Hebrews ends with this exhortation. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. And who are they? Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Judah, Joseph. Since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to who? Jesus the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Friends, Jesus is the only Savior worth looking to because he, from the beginning, has been, still is, will be, always, God's plan for saving us. So, what do we need to do? We need to live in unhindered pursuit of him. Would you bow your heads with me in a word of prayer? God, I pray that today, this morning, beyond the figures in this story, whether it would be Joseph or Jacob, or the, the faith that they modeled to us, 
that we would see beyond them the person of Jesus. I pray, God, that by your grace we would turn to Jesus, that we would walk with Jesus, that we would live in full pursuit of Jesus. There's no other way to live, Lord. So we pray for that. We ask that we would be a people of faith and that your good hand of providence would be upon this church as we move forward following you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.